0: Welcome to Season 3 of CitySpeak with Max Masudafarkas. Walt Disney may have been the man to dream up the now famous experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or EPCOT as it's more widely known, but my first guest isn't satisfied with mere prototypes. He believes that there is nothing stopping people from turning the cities of today into Disney's community of tomorrow. And indeed, a quick glance at his projects will prove that for years now, He has been doing just that. Carlo Ratti is the director of MIT's Sensible City Lab, a research group comprised of designers, planners, engineers, and scientists dedicated to finding visionary solutions to some of the most vexing problems of urban life. He and his team have designed everything from autonomous boats that help collect trash in the streams of Amsterdam to sensors that attach to New York City taxi cabs offering a real-time visualization of traffic in the Big Apple. Tune in to hear from a visionary designer whose ideas would capture the imagination of even the likes of Walt Disney. Season three of CitySpeak is proudly sponsored by Petoni Architects. Petoni Architects is a Los Angeles-based, award-winning firm committed to enhancing the way we live through architecture and interior design. You can explore their work at PetoniArchitects.com. Carlo Ratti, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to CitySpeak. Thank you for having me. You've been pretty much all over the world, and I'd actually like to start from kind of the very beginning, and that is to say your, your start at MIT. You came to MIT, as I understand it, to work at the MIT Media Lab in 2000, was it?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: And it was shortly thereafter in 2004 that you founded the MIT uh, Sensible City Lab, Um So I I just have two questions to kind of frame our discussion before we get into some of the substantive projects that you and your team have worked on. So the first is, can you just kind of paint a picture for us of those early days at MIT? What were like the questions, the topics, the technological developments that ignited the idea to start what has now become the very established Sensible City Lab?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for asking this. <clears throat> well, at the time I I was still finishing my PhD at Cambridge in uh, in the UK, and uh, I was invited by the then dean of the School of Architecture and Planning at MIT to spend a bit of time at MIT. Uh, so I initially arrived at MIT while finishing the PhD with a Fulbright uh, uh, scholarship. Um, and you're right, you know, I spent a bit of time at the Media Lab. We did great work with uh, Hiroshi Ishii. We still got a great relationship with uh, with Hiroshi. And then, you know, when my time was over, I got um, an offer to continue to stay on. And in that case, you know, to start a a new lab, a new center, Sensible City Lab. So that that kind of was the beginning.
0: And what was the impetus, I guess, for for starting the lab? What were some of the questions that MIT was thinking about at the time?
1: yeah well if you if you think about the early two thousand it was you know th- by the way two thousand was also the dot com bubble but basically everybody was working on digitizing the physical world, and uh, we thought you know wait a moment, there's actually something interesting that will come later, and that's actually not digitizing the physical world but looking at the convergence between physical and digital and that's really what happened like you know ten or fifteen years later that's what's happening today is about you know smart cities or uh, Uh, industry 4.0 or smart homes, all of those are based on the convergence of digital and physical.
0: And I think it would be helpful for our listeners who may not have had a prior familiarity with either your work or the work of MIT's uh, or your lab, just kind of to start with a, a, a basic definition. What is it that you mean by this notion of sensible cities? What makes a city sensible?
1: We were really excited about this convergence, as I was saying, of digital and physical. And, you know, people were starting to think about this, the applications in cities, about, you know, what people call smart cities. But they didn't really like too much the word smart cities. Uh, You know, I think smart cities sounds a bit too much like a computer in open air. Uh, I think I like the idea of a city that, yes, you know, leverages new technologies, but does it in order to create a more livable city. And that's why we like the idea of sensible, sensible in uh, the double meaning, able to sense, but also sensible. So how we can have a more sensible city for everyone. I
0: think with that, let's get into some of the um, the actual projects that the MIT Sensible City Lab has worked on and that you've spearheaded. And if you'll permit me to flatter you for a moment, there is one project that I'd like to start with that, you began developing, I believe, nearly six years ago now, and that with the hindsight of 2020, so to speak, it, the project seems almost clairvoyant in how relevant it became over the past year. The project I'm referring to, of course, is the so-called Underworlds project. Can you tell us what that project was about and how amazingly its applications have come into play in the past year?
1: Somehow, you know, we were talking about this convergence of digital and physical, and clearly, you know, in the physical realm, the biological world plays an important part. You know, and the biological world in cities is not only people, it's also the animals living with us, but it's also the viruses and bacteria. And, you know, believe it or not, but you actually, our cities share with uh, you know, this kind of a huge amount of uh, uh, miniature beings uh, viruses, bacteria, uh, and similar. And uh, actually, in, in our body, for every cell in our body, we've got around nine or 10 viruses or bacteria living with us. Now, we know today that actually viruses and bacteria are very important for human health. Um, but, you know, today will still be impossible to monitor and measure the human microbiome on a daily basis. You know, it's too complex. You would need to, 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 to ship specimen to, to the lab every day. So that will probably happen in a few years. But meanwhile, we said, you know, what can we do? Well, we can do this. Look at this. At an aggregate level, so somehow in cities we got like a beautiful aggregator of all of our microbiomes. That's uh, sewage water, and if you go into sewage water, we can actually learn a lot about the health of the community that's uh, that's behind it. So, so that was kind of the starting point. And in uh, you're right, you know, we didn't expect anything like uh, like COVID. But one of the companies that came out of the project called BioBot has been very very successful in order to uh, detect and predict COVID on a on a neighborhood on a neighborhood-scale basis so that, you know, we can actually implement better policies. You know, we don't need to have the same policy for all of Boston. We can actually look at neighborhood by neighborhood and uh, and then, uh, you know, take action in a more fine-grained way.
0: And just to make it super, super clear for our listeners, because watching the video on Underworlds is a pretty spectacular experience where the The shot opens in the sewage pipe, and the manhole cover is taken off, and you're effectively deploying actual sensing instruments into the sewage. is that right?
1: Yes, so what we're doing is is uh, you know well you you need to go into the sewage system, so that at the beginning we we're just using buckets, clean buckets in order to collect samples and then we realized you know that was not great fun. you know we went with the mayor's office and you know everybody got a bit disgusted after, after a few times so we we actually teamed up with our uh, with colleagues at MIT who are very good at robotics, actually with a CSAIL. CSAIL is Computer Science, Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. And so we started working with them in order to design a little robot that can go down in sewage and sample sewage. And then all the samples you can collect uh, once a day and take them to the lab. And there you can sequence them and learn a lot about all the viruses and bacteria that we find in sewage. Some kind, somehow, as I said, you know, like a collective microbiome.
0: And if I could just ask you almost to take on a a evaluative role, how would you evaluate the deployment of that technology in cities over the past year?
1: Yeah, you know, we, we, need, we need to take into account the fact that usually from uh, when you develop the technology, you got the technology in the lab, to when you see the technology deployed, usually, you know, you need five or more years. Uh, so it's not hugely developed, but actually Biobot is a, is a startup company, has been uh, sequencing sewage in over 300 cities in the United States. So I, w- I would say, you know, that given the very short time that was uh, very successful and also can help us be more prepared next time we might need to deal with, with something similar.
0: So continuing on the topic of public health and cities, the events of uh, 2020 have not only not stopped you from pursuing new projects, but in fact, it seems they've it's provided inspiration for you for new ones. And one project that's generated quite a bit of buzz is your project known as CURA, which stands for Connected Units for Respiratory Ailments. What, what did this in project entail? And can you tell us about how it relates um, to the concept? I think you talk about open source architecture.
1: Maybe it might be useful to say that actually I, I kind of wear different hats. So One hat is uh, is director of the lab or Sensible City Lab. We're based in, uh, on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but also with a small base in Singapore. Um, and then um, with, uh, with our design office in New York, in Turin, and in London, and uh, finally, with some of the startups, they came out of, uh, of both. So the, the project you mentioned, Cura, was mostly led by our design office. And, you know, like everybody in March, we, we we started living this unprecedented reality. And so the first question was, you know, what can we do in order to, to help out? I think that's, uh, that's what many of us uh, ask ourselves. And clearly, there's something that we needed at the time and we still need today, which is more ICU intensive care units. Uh, and, uh, if you think about what happened in different parts of the world, for instance, you know, actually people have installed many ICUs like in New York, in Madrid, in other cities, and, you know, it was a huge cost to install ICUs and then, you know, to move them around. Uh, so we wanted to have a system that would be very easy to deploy, you know, that you could just, uh, install in, uh, in 20 minutes or so, just like a washing machine, you plug it in. Um, and, uh, and we also so they could be easily moved from one place to another place. And the other important thing. Is that many makeshift hospitals didn't actually take into account um bioconfinement? Bioconfinement means that you know you make sure that viruses and bacteria, in this case COVID, don't escape the the ICU. Uh, you do that with negative pressure. You create a negative pressure inside the ICU so that basically air doesn't go out, it just goes in, and then you know, you you use a very specific filter in order to create negative pressure. And so again, you know, that's something that's very difficult to do in a makeshift hospital but you can do it easily in um, with cure uh, given that you know we started with uh, shipping containers so again these kind of shipping containers with uh, icus inside can be easily manufactured and deployed uh, across the the world and uh, again you know we were thinking how to best do this you know usually when you do such a project it will take you maybe just 6 months to get to uh, uh, you know to to to, to, to 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 get to construction drawings so what really had to move much faster and we decided to use a Again, something that has been enabled by by digital information, by networks, which is uh, open source. So we, we started collaborating in a very open way, sharing everything. We got a community in a matter of days, uh, grew to uh, over a thousand people. And um, and those are the people, actually, who now are replicating curapods all over the world. You know, we we we've, they sent us pictures of curapods in the UAE, in, uh, uh, in the UK, in Canada, in the US, in Italy, uh, in, in many countries around the world. So somehow, you know, what I thought was interesting um, is that the virus is code that attacks us. And uh, what we can do is actually develop another code that's a code of design, the code of intelligence, in order to, to fight back. And open sourcing is a way to do that, to, to, to allow code to replicate in different parts of the world. <laughs> just a final thing, just you know, more as an anecdote, one of my favorite projects they sent, they sent us was actually from a company, who, a legal company, who uh, used to uh, convert containers into pods for growing marijuana in uh, cannabis in wow. Canada, and actually they decided to change their business. Their business and uh, instead of growing marijuana, they started building ICUs. Again, you know, I think for me that uh, that was something very interesting of how if you share information, you can coalesce such a large community, which goes beyond the boundaries you would have normally worked within.
0: It's absolutely extraordinary. And continuing on that topic, I'm just curious. I would imagine you see that notion of open sourcing architecture and almost making it into a kind of network between buildings that can be constructed and deconstructed with relative ease. Do you see that as applying in any other contexts or verticals, even after, let's say, after the pandemic, apart from public health and ICUs?
1: Yeah, I, um, uh, I, I think that you know, we certainly want to learn a lot from nature. If you think about what nature does, you know, nature puts out different pieces of code. In that case, it's genetic code. And you'll see what works better and, uh, you know, what works better then is replicated. It can be replicated and conquer the world. And somehow, you know, our traditional system to uh, do designs and patent them and close them doesn't allow this kind of replicability. So I certainly like to think more about a way of doing design, architecture, urban planning, which is more similar to you know what what happened in cities for thousands of years in the past which is you know you do something you allow other people to uh, to to start from that modify it and uh, and, and copy it so somehow you know more going from a uh, for, for into into a condition where especially when we need to cha- tackle big challenges uh, like you know like covid or climate challenge and we are in this together and so we should share all the knowledge we have
0: another project that i found to be just inspired um, that came out of the pandemic as well and sort of relates to this notion of um, integrating nature is your project with this uh, sensible city lab known as Sonic Cities. Um, Can you just describe that project to the extent possible um, verbally and any potential future applications you might foresee for Sonic Cities?
1: Actually, you know, we, before we were saying the Cura was kind of led from our, by our design office. Now we're going back to, uh, to Sensible City Lab, to our research lab. And, uh, you know, we were, again, you know, the first step in order to see how you can respond to an emergency is to better understand what's going on. And better understanding what is going on, it means, you know, checking new infections and, uh, you know, contagion, R0 numbers and so on. What we've all been doing over the past year, you know, checking obsessively every day but also means better understanding what is going on in our cities. Some of the changes happening, some of the changes actually were interesting changes we've seen all over the world, like wildlife and nature coming back and conquering our cities. And so, but again, you know, a lot of this was anecdotal. We've seen a lot of this published in, uh, in papers, in newspapers, in media. Um, but, you know, we wanted to, 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 to better understand the measure, the, the transformation. So that's how we, we, we decided to, uh, uh, to look at, uh, measuring, better measuring noise in uh, the city and, you know, recognizing where that is coming from. Somehow, you know, the first step in order to improve our cities is to better understand them. And technology today allows us, gives us new tools to understand space. And so we we should always start from that in order to design better cities.
0: And how did you go about measuring, as you say, the noise of a given city? Were you deploying recorders throughout uh, New York City and
1: London and the like? Well, one of the things we like most at the lab is actually try to piggyback on, on, on data that's already there, right? You know, that's always great if somebody has the data and, you know, that's not being used to understand cities. For instance, one of the the most successful projects we did in the first years of, uh, of Sensible City Lab was uh, looking at data from cell phone companies that, you know, they were using just to better manage the network, but actually using the data in order to better understand the city. That was actually the first time when we did it, it hadn't been done yet. Uh, and now it's very common. If you just open uh, whatever Waze or uh, Google Transit, you will see, you know, traffic and other things which are collected from uh, from mobile phone data. So somehow, you know, we, we like the idea of using data that's already there and analyzing it. So we've done it in the past with, uh, with mobile phones. And in this case, we actually, by, by the way, we, we've done it recently. We're doing it recently with a lot of visual data, such as Google street view data. Uh, it turns out we got this huge data repository, uh, which is all the images collected in cities around the world. And then we can use artificial intelligence to analyze them, classify them, you know, detect uh, different things in the city, including green areas that we did in a project called uh, Tripedia. And so going back to Sonic cities, we did the same thing, but actually with a lot of data, which is collected by, by cameras. We got a lot of cameras, uh, especially open cameras where people have cameras in cities around the world and they collect both video and audio files. And then we started looking at analyzing those uh, those files in order to see what happened during the pandemic.
0: To close, I wanna get you to speculate perhaps a little too much in the abstract, but if you'll, if you'll permit me, do you see any lasting, particularly um, technological shifts that will um, exist after the pandemic? What are the major trends or paradigm shifts that you foresee um, happening in cities at the, interest, at the convergence of the digital and physical world um, once we are hopefully out of all of this?
1: Yeah. First, let me tell you what I think will not change. So I think, you know, we've heard a lot, we've read a lot of articles of people saying this is the end of cities and, you know, cities will not come back, the death of New York. Well, I don't think that is the case. I think, you know, cities have been going through many pandemics. Cities have a kind of a 10,000 year history. Uh, you know, they originate around 10,000 years ago. And the, over the past 10,000 years, they've gone through many wars and pandemics. Some of them much more devastating than the present one. Uh, think about Venice in the 14th century loses 60%, percent 60 of its population because of the Black Death. And so certainly, and, and, you know, and despite that, in the following years and decades, we went back to Bene- Venice, we crowded its streets and theaters. So somehow I'm, uh, I think, you know, this is certainly not the end of the city cities will come back kind of the magnetic force that brings us together in cities that's a force of wanting to be close to each other going going to a restaurant together going to see a movie a theater going to a concert you know doing going to a phone party you name it. that kind of force which is a very basic human and social force i think you know we'll will come back and actually i would guess it will come back bounce back a lot. Uh, somehow, I, I've always been intrigued by the 1920s. The 1920s uh, happened actually following the past pandemic, the 1917 18 uh, Spanish flu. And actually 1920s were a, a time of uh, incredible, uh, you know, urban and social life and the extravaganza. Uh, think about, you know, what we read about in the Great Gatsby, what you read in, uh, in history books. Uh, so somehow I, I, I think that, you know, we'll see some kind of pent up demand for cities spring back as soon as, um, you know, social distancing is over. Now this, uh, this answer f- half of the question you know, of what I think did, will not change. But what will change however, Uh, are a number of things. And I'll mention just one. Uh, I think probably the most uh, substantial one. Well, in our cities, especially global cities, such as uh, New York, London, Singapore, Milan, Paris, um, a large amount of the built environment is actually offices. And uh, what we are seeing now is that, you know, people were smart working before the pandemic, but now everybody does it. And there's kind of a social acceptance that wasn't there before. So somehow I think that... um, Many companies will we uh, will we will, will, will uh, downsize partially. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be ten percent or twenty or thirty percent. You know, if people work from home uh, two days per week, like uh, like now, it's. Uh, has been very common following the lockdown. So two days of smart working per week could, could mean theoretically a forty percent reduction in, in office space. And uh, but even a ten percent reduction would be would have huge consequences. Some of them even positive in terms of affordability. You know, uh, we could turn office buildings into residences and uh, and make uh, cities more affordable. Um, but uh, but somehow uh, I think you know that's a change that's going to stay with us how we live and work and hopefully. We will commute a bit less, uh, either the daily commuting or the kind of crazy commuting we've been doing in recent years of flying from uh, New York to L.A. or New York to Singapore for a three hour meeting and flying back. You know, that was crazy for, for our health, crazy for the health of the planet. Hopefully that will not come back.
0: Carlo Ratti, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to CitySpeak with Max Pseudofarkas. CitySpeak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and audio production by Greg Gordon Smith and Source Code Creative Media. Tune in for our next episode.